the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Stuart Campbell, the CEO of Axial Therapeutics. They're utilizing the three paths which connect our guts and our brains, and their drugs are looking to relieve autism-related irritability in teenagers to address Parkinson's and to make the latest cancer treatments more effective. And now, Dr. Stuart Campbell. Well, Stuart, welcome to the program. Hi, Moira. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for hosting. I'd like to start with the underlying science, which came out of the Caltech lab of your co-founder, Professor Sarkis Masmanian. I understand that there are three ways that our microbiome, that's the microbes in our gut, are interconnected with our brain. This is this so-called microbiome gut-brain axis. What are these three paths? Sure. So if we think about the microbes, particularly bacteria that live in our gut, there are trillions of them, and they communicate with our brain in, as you say, three different ways. The first way is a direct communication between nerves that surround the gut called the enteric nervous system. They're connected to this thing called the vagus nerve. It's one of the biggest nerves in our body and uh, the gut microbes. So they can talk to each other uh, nearly directly simply by being so closely associated with one another. A second way is that bacteria produce certain substances we call metabolites that are free-floating, they enter the bloodstream and from the gut in much the same way nutrients would enter the bloodstream from our gut, and they can circulate throughout our body and get to the brain. And and I want to say that it's some of the bacterial metabolites that get into our blood, not all of them. So some of them are influencing uh, brain activity in relevant ways. And the third way is through the microbes' education and influence on our immune system. So our immune system builds up over many years, in large part based on how our body sees bacteria and other microbes in our gut. So what does this mean for medical conditions which we associate with the brain, you know, like Parkinson's as an example? Sure. So Parkinson's is actually what we believe is that Parkinson's can be impacted by gut bacteria in a way that involves this vagus nerve system. So the first pathway that we discussed in that bacteria can produce proteins that look a lot like some of the misfolded proteins that we often associate with neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and ALS. And we happen to be working uh, most on Parkinson's at the moment because we've identified a bacterial product, a protein in this case, that looks like a misfolded protein and can actually enhance the misfolding of the problematic protein in the case of Parkinson's protein called alpha-synuclein. And it can accelerate, we believe it can accelerate the progression of Parkinson's disease. Talk about a bad companion. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Now, now, can you see that in the gut? 
We can, but we typically would look for that in somebody's uh, stool sample. So it, it tends to be excreted in stool samples, and we can look at it in that way. So you also do something with autism. I'm not totally sure how that figures in. So autism is a good example of the second avenue of communication between the gut and the brain, This using so-called metabolite uh, communication. So we've identified metabolites from certain bacteria that can enter our bloodstream. And we've shown in mouse studies that these metabolites can get into the blood, enter the brain, and change brain cell populations in a way that we can associate with certain behavioral changes. And in the context of autism, some of the challenges that people with autism have, especially when they're younger, is something called irritability. And uh, in that case, we've associated a particular set of metabolites from bacteria with things like irritability and anxiety. Well, before we go there, let me get the premise straight here. Are your drugs trying to target these microbes in the, in the gut? I mean, are they, you're trying to stop them? You're trying to enhance them? What are we talking about? Yeah, so it, our drugs are not trying to stop the microbes directly because the microbes are very resourceful. The community in our gut is very complex. There's a lot of redundancy in what they can do. So rather than try to target the microbes directly, for example, like you would with an antibiotic, we're not doing that. We are trying to take out the metabolites after they're produced, no matter who produces them in the gut. So that's what our drugs are trying to uh, target in the case of, of autism. But it's different for Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, we're actually trying to stop that protein that's produced by the microbes. We're trying to stop that from being produced in the first place. Okay, so you've got a lot of stuff going on here, but it's targeting those things in the gut the microbiome that lives there. Exactly. And let's talk about autism. You were saying the autism-associated irritability. What is that? So irritability, it, it, if, if we ask anyone on the street about irritability, they might define it as somebody who's on edge or impatient with somebody. That's not what we're talking about here. In the context of autism, irritability is very overt behavior such as self-injury, tantrums, outbursts, destruction of property, and they often need you know, to self-isolate. Uh, so it actually is a very serious problem for much of the autism community, not everybody, of course, but there's a large percentage of the autism community that does have this irritability uh, challenge, and it impacts their quality of life. If you're, if you're prone to outbursts and uh, self-injury, you might not do as well in school if you can go to school at all. And so we think that these are very important features that often co-occur with autism that we would like to address so that we can have these people with autism be more fully participating in society the way that we would hope they would be. 
Now, I know you're working with teenagers in Australia, New Zealand, in addition to the United States, and your first, your initial trial had 30 kids over eight weeks. Tell us what they did, how they took what medications, how did this work? Sure. So we have a drug, we call it AB2004. We'll give it a, a real name at some point. And we, it, this is a powder. So it's a powder that they mix with food. And th- when they eat the food, the drug travels through their gut. And as it travels through the gut, it picks up these metabolites that we're trying to reduce, much like a sponge would so- soak something up. And then they pass the drug in their stool. So the drug never enters their, their blood or their circulation at all. And so they would take this for eight weeks, as you said, in the first study. And we started at a very low dose. And it was three times a day with small amounts of food, whatever food they, they want. And after two weeks and four weeks, we would up the dose if they were tolerating the drug very well. And in this case, they did. So everybody made it to the top dose. And we measured several things. We wanted to first establish that the drug was safe and well-tolerated, and it certainly was. It had a very nice safety profile. We were really happy to see that. That's really important for kids with autism. Uh, We want to make sure any treatment they get is, is very safe. But in addition to that, we wanted to understand if this whole idea of soaking up these metabolites in the gut would we actually see a reduction of the levels in the blood? And we did. We saw significant reductions. And then the next question was, now that we've reduced those metabolites, does it have any impact on behavior at all? And we did see several signals of behavioral changes during treatment. And the treatment was a total of eight weeks. And then we had a four-week what we call a follow-up period where we they stopped the drug and then we looked at them again in the same ways a month later. And what we found was that the metabolite levels in the blood had rebounded all the way back to where they were when they started, which we would have expected. So we take the drug away, the sponge goes away and the, the metabolites come back up. And what we saw was some of the behaviors started to revert back to what they were before they started the treatment. So we really felt like we were, by moving these metabolite levels down and then up, and we were sort of tracking the behaviors along the way, that that gave us confidence that we might actually be doing something useful here and the drug may actually be working the way we want. And so we were, that motivated us to, to really continue the effort to understand whether this was going to be an effective treatment or not. And that's where we are now. Obviously, the teenagers themselves can't report the changes in their behavior. Who's observing that? It's uh, it's usually the parents or the caregivers and the doctors. So they would come into the office and the doctors are trained to assess uh, the kids in many ways. But some of the other assessments we did were what we call parent-reported outcomes. So the parents would get these questionnaires and surveys, and they'd be asked about all kinds of aspects of their uh, behavior over a certain period of time. And those are well-established surveys that one can use in the context of a clinical trial to determine whether uh, there's a change occurring or not. And moving scores 
in a survey is one thing. And that's, of course, what we need to be able to report to the regulatory agencies to, to keep going. But maybe what's more relevant to the families and the, and the, and the affected individuals is whether it means anything to them and their quality of life. And when we, when we asked parents for that kind of feedback during the trial, we had several really encouraging stories that uh, came from the families themselves. And one in, that comes to mind in particular was there was one child, a teenager, whose parents still had to bathe him on a regular basis. He would not bathe himself. Uh, and the one of the parents one night heard the water running and went up to find that their son had taken a shower on his own for the first time. And they had never seen any kind of behavior like this. And this happened while the, the, the child was on, on our treatment. Um, another one uh, was another child was a severe germaphobe. So he would not eat food unless it was prepared in front of him. And while on our trial, the family was able to go to a restaurant for the first time and the child ordered food off the menu and ate the food. And this had never happened to them before. So when you hear stories like that, you realize that there's perhaps the chance that something like this could really make a meaningful difference in, in not just the affected individual's quality of life, but the entire family that has to spend so much effort caring for this individual. Now, your current study, 200 teenagers, how is it different and where does this get you in, drug, in toward drug approval? Well, the current study, as you mentioned, it's much larger than the first study. The, the first study was 30 kids. This one's about 200. So um, we will get a lot better look at what the drug is actually doing. We are also comparing it to a placebo group, which we did not in the first study. And so this is a real litmus test for something like this. Anytime you're measuring behavior, you have to have uh, be conscious of a placebo effect. And so we've incorporated a placebo group in this. And when we complete this study, assuming it, it reads out in a, in a positive way, that would put us in a position to move on to, we believe, what we call pivotal trials or the, or the trials that, that someone like FDA would look at and say, yes or no, you can or cannot register this product for, um, for the patients in the broader population. Now, we're talking about, in this case, something that you, you a powder you take in, goes in through your stomach and to your gut, does its thing exits your system. It's not like taking a pill that has to break down, get into all your tissues or the target somewhere in your system. Is this easier to get through the FDA or not? Um, I think that the FDA will look at every individual case based on the merits of how well it works versus how safe it is. We believe that our drug will have an excellent safety profile because it does not actually get into your system and all your tissues. And so we, we think that this gives us the potential for minimal side effect profile, which unfortunately for a lot of the drugs that are out there are 
antipsychotic medications or you know, anti-anxiety medications, which can, they work, but they, they often have some undesirable side effects, which can, can be a challenge. Well, that actually is part of my next question. Before we go to the Parkinson's, you know, what are the advantages of dealing with targeting the microbiome uh, and the challenges of it? So the benefits, we believe, are that we're targeting a very specific location, essentially a passenger or its product that, that's on board with us. So we don't need to get the blood, uh, the, the drug. We don't need to get the drug to the brain in order for it to work. It's working locally in the gut. We think this is actually a huge advantage because it it does give us, I think, the promise of a better safety profile. Some of the challenges with this are that we're targeting something in the gut with the hope that it will modify something in the brain. And as we talked about, there's a lot going on between the gut and the brain that we have to understand. And we're just starting to understand in detail how the gut and the brain connect to one another. So there are some unresolved scientific questions that may pose challenges to us in unexpected ways. And we're continuing to do the rigorous science to address those, those challenges. Uh, but it will be a work in progress, but we're acting on the best information that we have at the moment. Now, are you still enrolling for this 200 teenager autism irritability study? Yes, we are. It's actively recruiting in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. And if you want to learn more, if you have a child aged 13 to 17 who has autism and is challenged with irritability, please go visit theautismstudy.com if you want to learn more about where the trial is being conducted. Now let's get on to Parkinson's. There's a lot to Parkinson's. It lasts a long time. There are many aspects to it. What are you trying to do in the Parkinson's area? And how is this different from your drug to treat autism-associated irritability? Well, you're right. Parkinson's is a, a progressive neurodegenerative disease that, that takes years or decades for it to work through its course. Uh, in some people, it's faster than, than others. Uh, the, the approach that we're taking here is that there's a protein or a class of proteins that bacteria in our gut can produce that we think can both instigate and perpetuate or accelerate that neurodegeneration process. And so if we think about that, most of the treatments that are approved for Parkinson's disease treat the symptoms, the, the motor symptoms that we associate typically with Parkinson's disease, but they don't address the underlying disease process itself. We believe that our approach will target the underlying disease process so that over the long term, the disease may either progress more slowly or even better, stop progressing. That's kind of our, our 
dream scenario is that we're able to stop progression entirely. But I think a more realistic goal at this stage is to slow down progression so that somebody may wait a much longer period of time before they have to go on uh, levodopa type therapies and things like that. So um, it's a what we call a disease progression uh, drug or disease modifying drug because we're targeting the underlying thing that causes and, and makes the disease worse. Now, this is not about removing metabolites from the gut. What is it about? So the, this protein that the bacteria produce, we want to block that protein from working with or entering the, the human tissue uh, and, and perpetuating this process. Our drug will inhibit or block this bacterial protein that we believe is accelerating and perpetuating the disease process. So it's not a metabolite modifier or a metabolite sponge. It's actually a more traditional type of drug. It just doesn't work inside the tissues of the body. It works inside the gut by targeting this protein that the bacteria produce. And you're in phase one? Where are you with this? We, this is still in, in what we call preclinical. So it, we expect it to enter clinical trials in about another year and a half to two years. So another by late next year. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Dr. Stuart Campbell, CEO of Axial Therapeutics. Now we get to one that I don't quite get because I don't always associate it as a problem with the brain. Um, you're also working on cancer. How does that fit in? We, we are working on cancer, and it, it, the, the connection may not be obvious, as you, as you uh, intimated, but um, what's really interesting is there's this new, relatively new class of drugs. We, you hear the term immunotherapy or immuno-oncology therapy, things like Keytruda, for example. These are drugs that work with the body's immune system to keep tumors at bay or to eliminate tumors. And these were highly touted to be the, somewhat of a miracle drug, and they are in many cases. I mean, they, the, the people who respond to these see terrific benefit, but not everybody responds to these as we would expect. And what not, has not been entirely clear is why certain people respond to these drugs and some don't. And there's been a body of work, not Axial or uh, Caltech's work. This is work that's been done at several world-leading labs that have shown that the composition of somebody's gut microbiome can actually impact whether they respond to a drug like Keytruda or not, or if they do, how well they respond. And the key there is the immune system, which is that third avenue that we talked about, the way the gut and the brain communicate. It's the immune system. So logic would tell us that if gut microbes can influence the immune system, and drugs like Keytruda need a properly tuned immune system to work, why can't we use the microbes or what the microbes are doing to help make these 
types of drugs better. And that's how we're approaching it. Well, let me get this straight. So it's the microbiome gut-brain axis. The, the gut is the microbiome. Your gut is related to the brain, can get back and forth to the brain, interconnected, one way through your immune system, one way through metabolites in your blood, and a third way through this vagus nerve, which runs all the way from your, your neck up here near my ear. I'm pointing on the radio. We love this. All the way down <laughs> through your body. Those are the three ways. And and that's those are the areas you're all working in, but you're focusing what you're doing in and out of the gut. Correct. That's right. It just seems so easy when I said it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's decades of, of, of work on the part of thousands of scientists that get you to that point. And, and we're forever grateful for, for all those efforts. And we continue to try to contribute to those as well. Well, Stuart, thank you so much. I do hope you'll come back and keep us updated. Thank you for having me. Dr. Stuart Campbell is the CEO of Axial Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at axialtx.com. That's axial, A-X-I-A-L, axialtx.com. More information about the autism-related irritability study in teenagers is available at theautismstudy.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.